Gospel of Luke, the 24th chapter. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have this opportunity to celebrate, to worship, to consider, to surrender our lives before you, to hear what you have said. We pray that we would allow your spirit to do his work in us. We want to worship you in spirit. Based upon the truth of your word, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every year, millions of dollars are spent purchasing professional sports apparel. Fans all over are hoping that this might be the year that they experience championship glory. On a lesser scale, every year, People of all ages join sports teams in baseball and soccer and hockey and softball. Not many of these people join in the hopes that their team will lose. On an even smaller scale, I used to be a very competitive person. I hated to lose. Then, as a preteen, I met a man named Ken. Ken loved to compete far more than, than I did. Uh, he and I would spend hours playing all manner of games. He taught me how to throw a screwball, a curveball, a slider, a sinker, and a rising fastball with a wiffle ball. And he would beat me mercilessly at wiffle ball and at indoor basketball with one of those Nerf hoops and sliding a football triangle across a table to see if we can get it to hang over the edge to get a touchdown or to flick it through for a field goal. Mercilessly, any game, he just would beat me into submission. And I used to get really mad. Then a real turning point happened. I met a girl. She was sweet and smart and beautiful, and her name is Amy. And we went to college together. We attended a very restrictive college. We were never alone. Now, I'm not complaining about that. Uh, we used to, on occasion, not very frequently, we went up to the dating lounge. On one of those opportunities that we went up to the dating lounge with the monitors walking around, making sure you weren't touching hands or any of this, we played a rousing game of Uno. And my competitive spirit got the best of me, and I beat her so badly she threw the deck of cards at me. <laughs> From that point on, I realized beating her at a game results in not happy moments. <laughs> so from that point on, I realized that winning was more like losing in certain instances. That experience changed the way I view competition in many ways. But of course, as a general rule, most people want to win. They want to be on a winning team. This morning, as our time of worship proceeds, we will look at the greatest victory that has ever been won and how that victory impacts the lives of those who have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Throughout world history, there have been attempts to undermine God's word. Satan is always at the helm of these attempts. He has been on mission to undo all that God is doing. Satan's strongest attacks have been against the word of God, 
because it's in the word of God that we find out about God's saving work through Jesus Christ. One area that is at the center of this attack is Satan's attempt to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection, God's promises have failed. God's redeeming work has failed. And God would have been proven to be impotent. There was recently a republishing of a blog post on the Gospel Coalition. It was written by Bernard Howard. In this post, Bernard Howard attempts to show how illogical the ministry of the apostles seem if Jesus had not risen from the dead. He begins quoting Richard Dawkins. Nobody knows who the four evangelists were, but they almost certainly never met Jesus personally. Much of what they wrote was in no sense an honest attempt at history. The Gospels are ancient fiction. The blog goes on. If Dawkins is correct, one might imagine the following conversation. Luke, let's have another round of drinks. I have an idea I want to run past you. Now, I'm going to pause in the reading of the the blog post because it would have been really, really funny if, if in the writing of this, Bernard Howard had included this little line from John the Apostle. No one runs past me. Let's include that in the story. Now, if you've read the Gospel account in Luke, you'd know that Peter and John were running toward the tomb, right? And John outran him. It would have been really funny. He didn't include it. So we'll, we'll continue with his rendition of this. Sure, what's on your mind? Luke writes or says, you probably heard about the Nazarene named Jesus, who was crucified yesterday, I think he could be the perfect candidate for our fake Messiah project. Mark, one tiny problem. He's dead. Luke, yes, but that means we'll control the narrative. We'll be in charge of his reputation. Matthew, who would follow a dead Messiah? Luke, nobody. So we'll begin with a resurrection myth. We'll hire some thugs to fight off the soldiers guarding his tomb so we can get rid of the corpse. John, but a missing corpse isn't the same as a resurrection. Luke, you're right. So we'll have to persuade Jesus' friends to spend the next 30 years telling everyone he's risen from the dead, even if sticking to that story means they'll be imprisoned or killed. Mark, okay, then what? Luke, Well, to make a conspiracy credible, you need precise details. So we'll invent stories where Jesus interacts with people in specific locations. Matthew, won't people just disprove the stories by visiting those places and asking around? Luke, there's no need to worry about that. We could invent a story about a synagogue ruler's uh, terminally ill daughter being healed. Give the synagogue ruler a name, set it in a particular place, and still no one, absolutely no one, not even the people living in that place would trouble to check a fact check. Everyone would simply swallow the story whole. Mark, it sounds like we're on safe ground there, but if we want people to follow Jesus, he'll need a message. People have been waiting for the Messiah for centuries. He's got to be worth uh, listening to when he finally appears. John, good point. I'll cook up some deep quotes. Luke, 
Thanks, John. Mark's right. You'll need to put profound wisdom on Jesus' lips that theological scholars can happily study for their entire careers. John, not a problem. Luke, guys, it will take us a while to put these documents together. We'll need to get communities of people worshiping Jesus in the meantime so that when our books come out, they'll get a good reception. Mark, there's a guy I know called Saul. He could help with that. Luke, Saul, Saul the Pharisee? I can't imagine him getting involved with this kind of thing. Mark, trust me, he's our man. I see him leaving behind everything he's been trained to do and planting congregations of Jesus worshipers throughout the Roman Empire, whatever it costs him personally, beatings, shipwrecks, and the like. Matthew, awesome. But Luke, can you just remind me, what's the point of all this? I mean, what exactly do we get out of this? Luke, come on, Matt, it'll be so much fun. We'll watch people being brutally martyred, and we'll know that they've been deceived by our dishonest fiction. What's not to like about that? John, I agree with Luke. This is definitely worth years of effort on our part. Count me in. Mark, me too. Matthew, I'll do it if my name comes first in the promotional material. <laughs> Luke, deal. Let's get to work. This is, it, it, it really is an illogical concept for people to give their lives over something that were eyewitnesses to what? No resurrection? Eyewitnesses to what? The death of their, their master following up with nothing? It doesn't make sense. We have recorded in the scriptures the truth of Jesus' life, the truth of Jesus' death, the truth of what that death accomplished, and yes, the truth of Jesus' resurrection. This is why we're here, folks. Every week, week in and week out, we get together and our concentration, our appreciation, our magnification, our glorification all surrounds this glorious event. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Here in Luke 24 is where we are in our Bibles, and you read this responsibly already. We want to read it one more time, beginning in verse 1. But on the first day of the week... At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. This is the gospel account. You can see it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The disciples, from a historical perspective, were all martyred for their steadfast proclamation of the resurrected Christ. James was first. In the late 60s, both Peter and Paul were murdered, martyred for their 
testifying of Jesus' resurrection. And then finally, in the late 90s, the apostle John, the brother of James, was martyred for his proclamation of Jesus Christ. They gave their lives. Look, please, with me at the book of Acts, chapter 1. You're in Luke, just two books to your right. Acts, chapter 1. The book of Luke is a, a researched and ordered account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection written by Dr. Luke for one Theophilus. The book of Acts is a continuation of that accounting as Luke records for Theophilus the continuation of Jesus' ministry, but now through the apostles empowered by the Holy Spirit. Beginning in Acts chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says this, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so we have this continuation of the record, and in it, Dr. Luke communicates the fact to Theophilus that Jesus appeared to many and demonstrated the reality of his resurrection, both in his appearances and in his teaching. The apostles were obviously marked by this, and particularly we might mention Peter, who consequently had struggled when he was confronted during Jesus' suffering. You remember he was even struggling to admit that he knew him. Three times he denied the Lord Jesus, even to the point of swearing. He was a broken man. You'll remember after the third time he rejected the Lord Jesus, Jesus looked at him. We don't know what that look was like, but knowing Jesus, it was not a look of condemnation, but a look of compassion. And that look rocked Peter's world. It says he went out and wept bitterly. After Jesus reappears, after his resurrection, as Jesus speaks to his disciples, as Peter, among the group of people that saw Jesus ascend into heaven and then waited on the day of Pentecost, Peter received the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God not only to be with him in the person of the Lord Jesus and among them as the Spirit being omnipresent, but directly inside, indwelling Peter himself. And that forever changed Peter's life. Peter's confident preaching stands as a strong persuasion for us to understand the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want for us to look just briefly at three accountings of Peter's communication after the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, take a look beginning in verse 22. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. The Bible says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades and let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make, uh, make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he is both dead and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Listen carefully. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, of that, we all are witnesses. His testifying does not stop there. In chapter 3, he is moving into the temple area, and there was a, a man who was disabled. And he asks them for, for silver. And you'll remember, silver and gold have I none. But in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You'll remember this. And in the testimony about how this took place in chapter 3, look at verse 12 and following. It says, and when Peter saw it, had, uh, saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we, may, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the, the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of of you all. So he's, he's testifying of the power. The power is not mine. I'm not special. This is a work, an authenticating evidence of the resurrected Christ. A little later in chapter 4, he again is speaking about this very same situation now before the council. In Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 8, listen to what he says. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to him, or to them, rulers of the people and elders. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, 
by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Here is Peter, the one who previously denied Christ. He saw the resurrected Christ. He is endowed with, with power from the resurrected Christ's spirit, the spirit of God dwelling in him, and he goes about in, in mass groups, in public, and then in a council meeting, and he's testifying of what? The resurrected Christ. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Take a look at one more passage on this particular item. 1 Corinthians 15. You're in Acts, you're going to go through Romans, and then you'll find yourself in 1 Corinthians. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, please. After we read this passage, what our desire will be is to spend a few minutes talking about what all of this resurrection talk and reality accomplished. What, why is it such a big deal? Why does it matter that Jesus rose from the dead? Here in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1, Paul is writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and he writes this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with what God has told us, in accordance with the written record, verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive some have fallen asleep. You know what he's saying there? If you, want, if you want to talk to some of them, there are some still here. Not just us. Some 500 people saw this, and they're still alive. Go talk to them. Verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The resurrection is a recorded fact from a scriptural standpoint, from the testimony of God's people, from the testimony of what God has recorded for us. The resurrection is reality. It's history. Well, what does it accomplish? The greatest victory. The greatest victory. There is no victory like Jesus rising from the dead. First of all, what is so special about the resurrection of Christ is that it gives victory over death. Victory over death. Sorry, wrong one. That was that's the that's number three. Victory over Satan. As we discussed at the start of our of our time of study, all through human history, 
all through world history, Satan is trying to stop what God is doing. He's trying to undo what God has done. And the Bible tells us through the resurrection that Jesus destroyed the power of Satan. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, this is on the screen for you. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death and life he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. The Apostle John wrote of this as well. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, he writes, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of Man was manifest, shown forth, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Think of it this way. While the crucifixion was Satan bruising Jesus' heel, the resurrection is Jesus giving the death blow to Satan's head. No shot after that. As soon as Jesus rose from the dead, Satan's plots had been ultimately and forever thwarted. The death blow. What is that from? The resurrection. The book of Ephesians chapter 1 talks about the power of God. And one of the ways that the power of God is seen is that Jesus ascended up into heaven. And the Bible says that he ascended up into heaven far above all authority and might and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this life, but in that which is to come. Jesus' resurrection and then ascension to the right hand of the Father put him in a position of authority that that will never, ever be taken from him. He destroyed the works of Satan. He destroyed the power of Satan. Satan, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is forever defeated. The second area that Jesus' resurrection produces victory over is that over sin. Over sin. The Bible tells us this in a prophetic utterance in Isaiah 53 and verse 10. You'll remember that that whole scene in Isaiah 53 is as Isaiah portrays for us in written form the suffering servant. He tells us that he had no form or beauty that we should desire him. It talks about how as as a sheep before its shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. You remember it talks about how he was bruised for our iniquities. In verse 10 of that passage, the Bible says this, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. It says, When you make his soul an offering for sin. This is exactly what Jesus' death was all about. An offering for sin. God ever spoke the first utterance to make the world come into existence. Before he said, let there be light, and there was light. Before he he formed man out of the ground, God had determined to send his son, Jesus Christ, as a sin offering. As a sin offering before there was ever sin. God determined to make his son, my Savior, an offering for sin. And the resurrection is a demonstration of Jesus' victory 
over sin. The Bible says in 1 John 2, 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. In John chapter 1, as, as John the Baptist sees the Lord Jesus walking by, he saw the Spirit remaining on him. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If Jesus remained in the tomb, that sin offering is an unacceptable offering. If sin defeated him, we have no salvation. If sin defeated him, we are all lost, perished, which is why the apostle says we would be of all men most to be pitied, most miserable. But Christ is indeed risen from the dead, and he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection has produced victory over Satan and over sin. Thirdly, victory over death. In Hebrews chapter 2, we already looked at verse 14 on the screen, how he, he came to um, destroy the works of Satan or um, to destroy him who had the power over death. Well, the very next verse, in verse 15, listen to what it says. Hebrews 2.15. And to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. What is he talking about? I, I want you just to sit in the quietness of your seat, and I want you to think, what happens after death? You do know that death has a 100% win ratio. Everyone dies. What then? The resurrection of Jesus Christ brings to us assurance that death is not the end. There's more. And so the question that everyone in this room needs to answer is what's next after death for you? Jesus in his resurrection has come to take the sting out of death. You're already in 1 Corinthians 15. Take a look with me in the book of 1 Corinthians 15 at verse 53 and following. Paul's talking about everyone's body um, he's talking about what needs to take place in order for us to be fit for heaven. And he says in verse 53, for those of us that have been fitted for heaven by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says in verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, uh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But... Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death hangs over our heads. Some of us are seemingly, seemingly closer to that day than others. Did you know that just yesterday a 22-year-old was driving down the street 
Then she drifted off the street to her peril. A 22-year-old. Every day, people of all ages breathe their last breath. Some of us seem to be closer to the end than others. Just because we seem to be closer does not mean we are. Death hangs over us all. Jesus bore a death of his own, didn't he? He knows what it is to face death. He knew he was headed toward death. He knew the very day of his death. He knew the very instant of his death, and he faced it. And he came out on the other side triumphant. Death is not a pleasant topic. Death is not a comfortable topic. Death is not something we like to think about and talk about. But for those of us that know Jesus, while we don't even like to think about the process of death, how is it going to happen, when is it going to happen, that still hangs over our head, we still know that death is not the end. And the real stinger of death, what's next, has been removed. How about for you? Do you know that Jesus triumphed over death so that you might have life and have it eternally? This is what the resurrection is about. Jesus' victory over Satan. Jesus' victory over my sin. Jesus' victory over death itself and over my death. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead tells us that those of us that know Jesus as our Savior have an assurance of resurrection. An assurance of resurrection. But don't let that, don't let that confuse you. Everyone, everyone will be raised after they enter the tomb. Don't take comfort in the fact that, well, only believers are raised from the dead. I'm just going to die like a dog and go in the ground and that'll be the end of it. That, that, un, un, unfortunately for you, that is not the end of the story. Everyone, believer and unbeliever, will be raised. Some, unto everlasting life with God. Others, unto everlasting condemnation in the lake of fire. Everyone will be raised. The question is, will you be raised unto what? Death or life? Condemnation, joy. Peace with God, enmity with God. Raised one way or the other. For those that know Christ, we have an assurance of resurrection that is real and lasting and, and, and filled with glory. We're in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 already. Take a look beginning in verse 19. If in Christ Jesus, or if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who, are, who belong to him those who belong to Christ. So the question, I suppose, and rightly should be asked at this moment, uh, okay, Jesus uh, rose from the dead. It's a, a scriptural fact. It's a historical fact. Jesus rose from the dead. Glorious. What did it accomplish? Victory over Satan? Good. Victory over sin? Excellent. Victory over death? 
okay, this is good news, but for whom? All those who have trusted Christ. What do I do then to be part of that blessed number? I'll take a look at Romans, please. Romans, that's one book to your left. Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, we're going to cut right into Paul's discussion. He's telling the Roman church that Abraham was justified by faith, and through, through Abraham's faith he received the righteousness of God. And then he says, this is true for you as well, beginning in verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us. What will be counted? Righteousness. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also, or we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In this passage, Paul is telling us that it's through faith in Christ that God removes our transgressions, our trespasses, our sin. He removes them forever in Christ. And he gives to us, he grants to us justification, righteousness. Jesus' perfect record is placed on our account. How? Through faith in Christ. Through that faith in Jesus Christ that results in justification, it also results in peace in chapter 5 and verse 1. Later on, it talks about reconciliation. He says, you have obtained this access, in verse 2, by faith into this grace in which you stand. So the question that we have to ask is, have you come to that place where you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Listen, watching a victory celebration for someone else's team seems kind of hollow, doesn't it? Like, I don't really want to go and watch the Pittsburgh Steelers celebrate a Super Bowl. That, that's just, I have no interest in that. I'm not going to go travel to Chicago and watch the Cubs, though I feel bad for them over all these years, 108 years or whatever it was, of misery, of losing every year and never winning a World Series. I'm not going to go and celebrate in the streets of Chicago because the Cubs won the World Series. That, that has, I have no interest in that. It doesn't mean anything to me. A vested interest is what we celebrate. This morning, we're here to celebrate, like every other week, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Is that falling hollow on you? Does that, does that feel kind of empty, useless? Or within you, is there a welling up, this joy of knowing the resurrection of Christ, what he has done for me, for you. And we, and we sing, we sing about the resurrection of Christ and what it has accomplished. Does that, is that a celebration? Is that worship? Is it going on inside of you? If he is your savior, you feel a great sense of rejoicing. This is your everything. It is the celebration of life eternal. If he is not your savior, if you've never called upon the name of the Lord to save you from your sin. This celebration may seem useless. In John chapter 3 and verse 18, Jesus said, Whoever believes in him, Jesus, John wrote this, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
Which situation do you stand in? In eternal life, or do you stand in condemnation? Today, you can experience the benefits of Jesus' victory over Satan. You can stand and experience the benefits of Jesus' victory over sin, over death. And you can have confidence that one day you'll be united together with your Savior face to face in assurance of the resurrection. This can be yours today. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you believe that Jesus died in your place? That he took your sin on him. That he was buried. And that God, in a stamp of approval and authentication of that victory, raised Jesus from the dead, triumphant over your sin. If you believe that Christ alone is your salvation, you can talk to God today, recognizing that you're a sinner. You can say, God, I know I'm a sinner, and I know I deserve a penalty for my sin. But I see from your word that Jesus took my penalty on him, that he paid the price for my sin. He was buried and he rose again, triumphant over my sin. I need this eternal life you've offered me. You too can have life today. Today. And Jesus' victory over Satan is your victory over Satan. Jesus' victory over sin is your victory over sin. Jesus' victory over death is your victory over death. Jesus' resurrection is an assurance of your resurrection. This is why we come every week to recognize that we have life because of Jesus. We come today to talk about the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ and its impact in our lives. That impact can be yours today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness. None of us, none of us would have conceived such a thing as this. None of us would say that God should die for man. None of us would say that God should take on human flesh uh, to, to know what it was like to hunger and thirst and be tired. None of us would, would think, oh, oh, it's a great idea for him to be ridiculed to be mocked, to be scorned, to be beaten, to be crucified. None of us would say that he should be made sin for us, even though we knew no sin, that we might be made your righteousness through him. None of us would have conceived of this, but you have before we were ever born, before this world was ever created. You conceived of this. You determined to save us. Thank you. Dear Father, we pray for anyone in this room or under the sound of this voice that you would open the eyes of their spirit and give life that they might have faith to trust Christ. Do this work by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.